and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. We're coming up to the 400th episode of this podcast. And so I'm revisiting some of my favorite topics with new guests, sometimes with a co-host, sometimes with multiple guests. And so this week, I thought it would be appropriate to talk about a major scientific discovery. Physics is definitely not my forte, but I always love talking to experimental physicists or theoretical physicists not just because they help me feel insignificant, (laughs) but also because they put things into perspective. All of a sudden, when you're talking about discovering a whole new way of powering our world or our place in this vast universe, the everyday problems that I'm facing seem less important. So this week, I have the pleasure of talking to two physicists, yep, two at the same time, both from Lawrence Livermore National Labs, And they were part of the team that had this huge breakthrough back in December 2022, when essentially in a series of experiments, they showed that fusion is actually a viable potential energy source. Sabrina Nagel is a group leader in the physics division at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, and she's the lead scientist for the National Ignition Facility's Dynamic X-ray Detectors Group. And then Dr. Matthias Hohenberger is an experimental scientist and group leader working on inertial confinement fusion at the NIF at the Lawrence Livermore National Labs. He's been working and performing experiments in the pursuit of, and now on the accomplishment of, fusion ignition for the last 13 years. Sabrina and Matthias, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm so excited to talk to you. Well, thank you very much for having us. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for having us. It's exciting. So let's start with, uh, first of all, in terms of your respective roles, can you each just tell me, maybe we'll start with Sabrina, what your roles are on the sort of grand thermonuclear fusion project? Sure. Um, so yes, the I am uh, one of the scientific leads in uh, the, developing some of the diagnostics, the experimental diagnostics for the National Ignition Facility, and we have uh, we have optical diagnostics, nuclear or particle diagnostics, as well as X-ray diagnostics. And so I'm kind of heading a part of a co-head, so to speak, uh, for developing some of those uh, systems. And um, as yeah, we've been, I've been working on this for over ten years now, and it's great to see that we're getting exci- exciting results. And yeah, as you might imagine. The diagnostics are what um, measures what's going on in the in the experiments and helps us tweak and um, and change the input parameters so that we were able to achieve ignition. All right, and so Matthias, are you the one that pushes the button? <laughs> Is there a big <laughs> no, red button no, that you push? <laughs> unfortunately, not. I would. I, that would be so exciting. Um, no, I'm so I'm what's generally referred to as an experimental physicist. So I'm I'm. One of the many people that would um, uh, tell the facility operators how to set up experiments, how we want to, what we want to measure, how to set up the diagnostics that Sabrina and her team has developed, 
um, and, and what it is that we're trying to do in this particular experiment. And so I'm doing experiments in the ICF, uh, International Confinement Fusion Program, uh, and I'm also a group leader for inclusion and stagnation physics, uh, which means the people in my group also do experiments in this area. So let's talk about fusion. And just for uh, our listeners who maybe not are not as familiar, what exactly are we talking about here? What's what's the what's the fundamental idea behind it? So, uh, so fusion is a nuclear process, which means it's happening with the nucleus of the atom, which is the heavy part in the center that's surrounded by electrons, and it, it basically changes the configuration of the nucleus. There's two main ways of doing this. One is fission. That's what most people are familiar with. And the other one is fusion. Um, a fission is the part where you split up the nucleus into smaller parts. And then fusion is the opposite process where you take two light elements, two light uh, nuclei, and push them together hard enough that they stick together because they don't want to be together, that they stick together and form a heavier element. And so in, in the fusion process here, we're taking two uh, deuterium and tritium ions. Um, that's basically hydrogen. Hydrogen is the lightest element we have um, with a few extra neutrons. And we're squeezing them together under very intense pressures and temperatures. And then when they stick together, they form helium, which is the second lightest element that we, that we have. And when you weigh the helium atom at the end, it's actually lighter than the sum of its parts some of the elements that we squeeze together. And by uh, Einstein's equation, energy equals mass times the speed of light square, that means that difference in mass has to go somewhere, and that's the energy that is being released as, as heat, essentially. So that's what fusion is. And so the ultimate idea here, potentially in terms of an application, is that you could create uh, a lot of energy with this process. And it, how, you know, can you tell us a little bit about, so like the kind of grand hundred years from now vision uh, or whatever that is, maybe it's five years from now, I don't know, <laughs> that, you know, you could capture that energy and use it. And is it, is it, how is it better than some of the other energy sources that we have today? So the fusion energy is, um, is basically a, a the, helps the promise of a, a clean, carbon-free, robust energy source for everyone and uh, basically it's also uh, so it's clean in the sense of that it doesn't produce radioactive waste with long life uh, long half-lives and then it is uh, not uh, reliant on on the sun being out or the uh, or wind wind blowing for for us to get have it you can have it at the push of a button yeah, hopefully in the future um, and so with that um, and then the fuel that we need for it is also very fairly abundant. So hydrogen, you know, uh, isotopes, are, you know, you can get them from seawater. And so they, they're fairly readily available for people to use. Yeah. So maybe the vision in the future would be that you could use some amount of seawater and create an abundant energy source that could cleanly power our lives without the danger that some of the other power sources have. Is that right? That is right. It, it doesn't produce... Uh, greenhouse gas emissions. It doesn't produce these long-lived half-life uh, radioactive isotopes that people are rightly worried about. Right? You don't have things that are still radioactive in you know twenty thousand years, um, and and also it doesn't have uh, this runaway reaction process that you can have in a nuclear reactor like Chernobyl. It just cannot fundamentally happen with the reaction that 
with fusion reactions. So I want to learn a little bit more about like, you know, what the actual experiment or what, what the, what the work is like. So first of all, you've got these tiny atoms, right? So how, I mean, where do you get them from? How do you know they're there? I mean, this is such a, having the two of you here is such a gift because I feel like, you know, you can, you can teach me a lot about sort of how you're detecting that they're actually there, that it's actually going and how you put it all together. So can you just walk me through like the steps of, you know, one of these experiments? Okay, so the the fundamental target is is basically a small capsule. It's about two millimeters in diameter, and it's it's made out of diamond. And in that hollow hollow capsule, in that sphere, is a cryogenic layer of deuterium tritium ice. So deuterium tritium are these heavy hydrogen isotopes, and so there's a very thin layer of ice. So it's at fourteen Kelvin or so, so very close to absolute zero. But like, like, do you put that in there? Like, do you have the capsule? You have like a whole bunch of these diamond capsules, and you stick a little bit of <laughs> ice yeah, so, in there. So the, the capsule has a little fill tube. The fill tube is two microns in diameter, so that's fifty times smaller than the width of a hair. And through that, you you basically pump gas, deuterium tritium gas, in there, and then you cool it down, and you form this layer in a very complicated, intricate process that <laughs> I know uh, very little about. There are experts to do this. And then, so that's that's your target. That contains the fuel. And this little pellet sits inside a whole round, which is about, uh, it's a little, uh, a gold cylinder about uh, a centimeter in size. And so what happens now, we have this massive laser facility, the National Ignition Facility. It has 192 laser beams. And we take these laser beams, it's the most powerful laser in the world. Uh, we take these laser beams and we focus them into that tiny target. Laser beams, half at the top, half at the bottom, 96 beams on each side. They're focused through uh, a little hole in the cylinder onto the walls of the cylinder. And in a very short time, about 10 nanoseconds or so, we put uh, two megajoules of energy into the cylinder. And so that laser energy heats up this little cylinder to uh, ridiculous temperatures. Basically, it, it, it gets an incredibly hot oven of about 3 million degrees. And that then starts ablating the the outer wall of the capsule that sits in the center. Because it gets so hot, right, the things just sort of fly apart. And because the, the stuff on the outside of the capsule flies apart, the stuff on the inside gets compressed. That's reaction, action, reaction by a neutron. It's the same way that a rocket works. You push a lot of stuff out at one side, and the rest of the rocket goes up. Right, and so that's how this thing gets compressed, and so uh, uh, the thing basically implodes. That's what we what we call it, and the center of that capsule, the DT, gets to a pressure of about five hundred gigabars, uh, which is ten times higher than the sun, and about one hundred fifty million degrees, which is also about ten times hotter than the sun, and that is the conditions that you need for these fusion reactions to take place. Okay, so so now I have a sense of like, you know, there's this little tiny thing in this big room with all of these lasers pointed at, at it. It creates, you know, this 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 big uh, sort of almost like a, I think of it as like maybe like a little explosion when all these lasers are hitting it, and that causes the 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 pressure um, that puts these two atoms together. So Sabrina, now I'm assuming that this is this is maybe where you come in in terms of making sure this all happened the way it was supposed to, or you know what? So 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 what happens next? 
That's right. I mean, in addition to what uh, to the experimental uh, the diagnostics, I should add, like there's also already diagnostics going on at the beginning of the experiment before the experiment actually happens. While this ice layer is being grown, there's already X-ray radiography of that capsule to make sure that the the layer is very uniform and thickness is, and it's growing as it's supposed to be growing, and that we know that we have an ice layer. Um, and then there's alignment systems, etc. So there's a lot of diagnostics that are facility diagnostics that are on every experiment that we do um, and that that tell us that the target's in the right place, that, you know, the lasers are hopefully going to give you the right energy, etc. And then um, once the, yeah, when the laser fires and that uh, that system heats up and everything, so we have another, we have different, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, we have different um, diagnostics and the ones that in particular for these uh, for these ignition type experiments the ones that are telling us that we got uh, the neutron yield or the energy out that we expected or how or what uh, the, the number of the 3 megajoules out or above 3 megajoules out we got that mainly from uh, the neutron detectors right and so those are basically measuring the in this in this fusion reaction that Matthias was talking about earlier, where we diffuse these uh, deuterium and tritium isotopes and put them in, uh, make a helium and a neutron. So the helium generally stays in this hot spot or this hot gas, c continuing the heating because it's such a big particle. And the neutron that we get out is fairly high energy, about 14 MeV, and that escapes. And so we can measure those escaping uh, the interaction, and basically we count neutrons. Um, and that's how we know how much energy we got. Uh, so there's a because the, every the the energy that comes out of these reactions is very is, is known, and so um, we we count neutrons to know how much energy we got out, and um, that's fairly simple. And in addition to that, we also try and look at the X-rays. So this hot spot that's very hot now, and it's um, hotter than the center of the sun. And so it, it emits it emits this this bright uh, light in in, in X-rays, and that allows us to image them. We're using X-ray cameras. Okay, so this whole process happens. How long does it take? Like, is it is this something that happens in like a cut, you know, a couple of nanoseconds, or is it like, you know, you get the thing going and it takes three days? <laughs> And then no. you get your result. So, so the experiment is like in the blink of an eye, right? So the, as Matthias mentioned, the laser that drives it is about ten nanoseconds long, which is uh, about the time that it takes light to travel about three meters or just under ten feet. And then um, the interaction itself, where the fusion where the fusion happens, that that time scale is on the order of a hundred picoseconds. So that is the time it takes to travel about three centimeters, a little bit more than an inch. And then for spatial scales, uh, we mentioned that this experiment sits in the center of this big chamber. And the chamber, uh, this vacuum chamber, is, it has a diameter of 10 meters. And so we have to, um, at, at that center is this one centimeter um, large whole realm. And so we have to align the, the, the lasers into that. And then the compression of the capsule that is starting out at the two millimeter scale, which is about a peppercorn size, we have to compress that, well, that gets compressed to or to the order of the width of a hair, so about 50 microns. And so that's the scale that we're kind of trying to measure, like the 50 micron scale with, and we're trying to measure that with some resolution. So our resolution has to be below the uh, below the 10 micron uh, resolution. And yeah, and then in, in addition, the whole experiment, because 
So if you think about it, the two millimeter uh, pellet compressing to the 50 micron hotspot, basically that's similar to trying to compress, uniformly compress a basketball to the size of a pea. And so that, that that's kind of, and we're trying to do this uniformly so that there's no, it doesn't burst out at one point and it won't get the heat and the density that you need in the core to uh, get the fusion going. Sabrina talked about neutrons a lot and we haven't actually mentioned that yet. <laughs> so <laughs> when we fuse the deuterium and the tritium together, so we create helium, but then we also create a whole bunch of other stuff. We create a lot of radiation, um, x-rays are flying out, we can see those, we can measure those. Um, and we create uh, particles as well that, that we can see neutrons predominantly. And so that is the, the, the neutrons that are being emitted, emitted at a specific energy. That is the signature of fusion reactions taking place. Um, and it is one of our key ways of measuring the performance of this uh, experiment. So we essentially count the number of neutrons that we're getting out. And that tells us exactly about the conditions in the, in the hotspot. You can measure the velocity of the neutrons, essentially. That tells you about the temperature. Uh, how many neutrons did you get out? That tells you about how good was your reaction, how, how efficient was your reaction. And, and so that's why Sabrina was talking about measuring neutrons. It's one of our key signatures. Where is the energy that then ultimately, like, let's say this goes to scale that you, we would use to power it. Is it, is it in the release of the neutrons? Like where, like what, what is it that ultimately we would want to capture and use to power, you know, our refrigerator or whatever? So the, the, the funniest thing is that, um, we do all these really amazing things. And then at the end of the day, we basically boil a kettle. So that's how a fission reactor works as well, right? You, you have these fission reactions that creates heat, which then essentially boils water. And without water, you drive a turbine, and, and that generates electricity for the grid. And you would do exactly the same thing with a fusion reactor, which uh, is, I think is hilarious because we have a state-of-the-art scientific understanding, and then you do the same thing that humans have been doing for, I don't know, millions of years. <laughs> So um, there was a lot of press uh, a little while ago about, you know, it finally being successful. Can you walk me through, like, how many times was it unsuccessful or was it like this was actually the 10th successful run because that's what you need in order to publish a paper? Like, what, what sort of like the what was it or was it like, oh, finally it worked after the hundredth time that it didn't work? Um, what, what, what how did this discovery kind of come about? So the the important takeaway is that this is. It, this has been uh, about six decades in the making. Um, so there's been a countless number of scientists and engineers uh, that have been working on this all over the world. This is a US-only project. And it took a lot of learning to get to the point where we are today. And so I don't know how many times have we tried it and failed. That's a, that's a very difficult question to answer. But, you know, 60 years. But it, it, it took all this time to understand the limitations of you know the laser capabilities that we had you know 50 years ago or so what we needed to do better you know how smooth does the laser have to be how uniform does the compression have to be how perfect do these targets have to be you know what are the the processes that go are going on at these very very extreme conditions that we're creating you know temperatures and pressures like the sun and how do we how do we overcome these instabilities uh, so 
ultimately it's a race, right? You, if you if you make something very very hot, it doesn't want to stay hot. It wants to become cold, right? Pot of boiling water out, you get it, it gets cold again. And so the 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 race is to compress it fast enough, keep the reaction going for long enough before the whole thing falls apart again, because that's what it will do. That's that's why it can't have this runaway reaction. It, it wants to stop again. And so being able to control that reaction at a sufficient level, that's what took so long. And and to the outside, this looks like a, a breakthrough, and it is, but but really it it's a series of incremental steps over several decades. And and really within you know within the program, people that are close to these experiments, we've known that we're really, really close to getting this for the last couple of years. Um, there, there's always a, an element of of you know surprise when it actually does happen. Um, but we've we know we've known that we've been close for a while. And actually, I, I want to point out how incredible the requirements are for this. So, for example, the capsules that we're shooting are just marvelous products of engineering. Um, for example, they're so smooth. So these they're about two millimeters in diameter. They're smooth to about three to four nanometers. And just to put that in perspective, if you were to blow that capsule up to the size of the Earth, the biggest hill you'd see would be about 100 feet. That's how smooth they are. Um, and that's what's required for this implosion to be clean, because otherwise what happens, you get uh, basically jets forming and material being ejected into the hotspot, and you don't want that because it disturbs the reaction. Um, they're not entirely perfect. One of the issues we've been having over the last couple of years is that uh, there are what we call defects in these capsules. There are little pits, um, you know, maybe little bubbles, little voids at, in the wall of the target, things like that. There may be some high Z materials that you don't want, so tons or you know, something like that at, at a place where you don't want it. All of that is important. All of that will make the implosion perform less good. Um, and so that that's part of the process of learning how to do this right. Sabrina, anything you want to add in terms of you know what Matthias was just talking about? Yeah, I mean, this is, I guess, we've 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 had a lot of uh, fusion reactions in the lab, right? I mean, we've been, been counting. We've done. We know how to fuse deuterium and tritium. That that's you know, that that has happened. It's the amount of energy that we get out. So the amount of fusion reactions that we see, and and as Matthias mentioned, the um, the first time that we get more of the fusion energy out than we put in, that's the that's the real thing that happened in December. We were really close before then on a on a number of experiments that were in kind of what we call the burning regime, which is, uh, which is very close, and you could you could from that step say, okay, it's it's we're getting there, and it should it's just a matter of time. And what happened was we basically got a little bit more energy. We made the capsules, I think, a little bit thicker, more, a bit a little bit more robust, and that pushed us over the edge, basically. Yeah. And so how how replicable is it now? Like, do you feel like, okay, well, now we know exactly what to do. And if we did it again tomorrow, it would work exactly the same way. Or is it more like, well, you know, we were kind of lucky because we didn't have any tungsten on that particular part of the capsule <laughs> that time. But like, you know, I think about like how hard it is to put one of those, you know, glass protectors on an iPhone. Like when of those bubbles come, you know, it's super annoying. Like, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Yeah, the, so like talking to target fabrication, they're very fairly confident that they can create, uh, recreate the, uh, like capsules with with that quality again. And so, uh, so same same for the laser, they are very confident that they uh, can uh, deliver same uh, same type of laser pulse shapes. 
So from that perspective, we are very confident that we could reproduce it as a as a team, right? So um, okay. and there, there's definitely plans to do that at least a couple of at least at least one time this year, probably maybe a couple of times this year. And, you know, what is the major hurdle in terms of just doing it over and over again? Like, what is it? You know, um, um, it sounds expensive. <laughs> you know, you've got a lot of person power, but like, you know, so like what, like, why don't you, why aren't you doing it every day? Like, you know, so it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a little bit the people power. Then the, the other thing is that the facility is not just used for this. There's also other, other shots on this. So this is, these are not the only shots. We have like 400 shots a year, roughly on the facility. And um, ignition shots or like ICF related shots, especially these these more more um, involved experiments, they're on the order of every two week, two weeks to four weeks. So maybe once once a month, really the high um, kind of on that on that time scale. But the other limiting um, thing is, yeah, the you have to like after these shots, you have to stay out times for personnel safety, um, etc. Because there is some activation from the neutrons, uh, short-lived, but you don't want to get, get in there too quickly. Um, and then there's some uh, some time that we have to do uh, data collection as well, and the laser uh, cannot, I think, um, at this point, um, shoot at this at these high energies on a um, fairly high repetition rate for us. It's like once a day, but <laughs> we, can, we can't really shoot um, at that uh, rep rate for the, for the laser at this point, because this was... Um, and I think, yeah, the laser was built in the in the on on eighties, nineties laser technology. So you could make it more efficient nowadays, but that's when the facility was uh, or the technology was established for this technology for this facility. Okay, so now that you've you've proven that it's possible, you got more energy than you put in. What are the next steps that have to be done before this is going to be, you know, an option that people can use? Do, you, do we know what those next steps are? Is there like a clear trajectory or is it still like, you know, unclear? Well, like, I'd say yes and no. There, there's certainly some things that that we know that need to be done. It, it's certainly not at the point where you expect a future power plant to happen tomorrow. I think the what we did demonstrate is that the science works. You can get more energy out of the system than you put in. And that's important because it moved the whole thing from a science problem to an engineering problem. But really, so we got, we put two megajoules of laser energy in, we got three megajoules of fusion energy out, but that's really not good enough for a power plant. You really want something like, you know, say 50, maybe 100 megajoules. So, so much, much higher efficiency uh, than, than we demonstrated. The other thing you want to do is you want to be able to shoot this 10 times a second, which with laser that we have here is not possible. The targets are much too complicated to do that. So there's there's a lot of problems that have to be simplified, a lot of things that have to be simplified before we can do this. And then it's also not clear what the best approach is to, to a power plant. So we use lasers to compress these targets, but that's not the only approach that you can use. It's, it's the one that we're doing, and it's the one we understand the best, obviously. But there are other ways to do this. There You can use magnetic fields to confine the, the hot dense plasma. There's things like uh, proton ignition where you use when you use accelerated protons to hit a little capsule and, and make it hot that way. Um, so there may be other approaches that may or may not work better. And there's kind of now there, there's work that needs to be done to figure out what's the best approach, what's the most viable, commercially uh, approachable, the, the best way to approach this commercially. And and so I think we're, we're still certainly years away from this, from, from having something like a fusion power plant. But um, 
I, I like the comparison to the to the Wright brothers uh, demonstration of flight in 1903 because they flew what 100 feet or so, which you know that's not useful, but the implications were enormous. And, and now, of course, flight is uh, you know, everybody uses flights for transporting cargo and people, and and it, it defines society we live in today. And yeah, in addition to that, yeah, I mean, just to note for this shot, ignition shot. Uh, the actual energy I think that NIF took from the grid in order to achieve the shot was 300 megajoules. So that went into two megajoules of the, for the laser, which then got one and a half out. So the laser that drives the target uh, was the two megajoules and then about three megajoules out of fusion energy. So that's where the one and a half times comes from. So we're not wall plug even, you know, we're not at that point. And uh, NIF wasn't really built to do this. This is a science uh, facility. So this was shown uh, like, to prove the principle. And so, yeah, we would have like to have way more efficient lasers. And I think um, now, nowadays laser technology also is like, um, the efficiency I think is coming to 20% wall plug efficiency for laser technology. So that's a lot better than the NIF can do at this point. And the repetition rate for these high energy lasers has gone up as well, which is something that you would need for a power plant, right? You would like need a high rep repetition rate. You have to have this kind of type of interaction every second. And so you need a very robust and easy to manufacture targets for that. And so the, the approach that NIF is taking might not be the approach that a power plant has as well. But there's, there's, there's currently people looking at that, how, what, what would be the efficient way to do it. But you still think that in the power plant, it would be some version of lasers shooting a small thing <laughs> um, or maybe a mid-sized thing that, um, you know, like that would still be the kind of conceptually the same idea or? If, if we were to design it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then the magnetic uh, magnetic confinement people would say it's a, it's a more like a tokamak, right? It's like Got more it. that, uh, that magnetically confined donut. And, um, and then... Some other, yeah, so it depends on who you talk to, I think. But um, the different technologies have different risks, uh, different technological risks that need to be addressed, I think, at this point. And uh, there's people both in the industry as well as in laboratories and in national laboratories working on it um, and kind of collaborating on it as well. Yeah, so but, I was going to ask about... they're all doing the same thing. Sorry. Yeah, like what, like what, what, what is what is the industry's reaction to this? Are they all kind of now rushing in to be the first to, you know, kind of create a commercial, vi commercially viable version of this, or are they still sitting back on the sidelines, letting the scientists figure out and make it more efficient? There has been um, a lot of commercial interest. There are there are a number of uh, companies, startups that. Uh, some of them have been around for a couple of years now uh, that are trying to get a, a foot in this uh, commercial space and, and working on potential viable uh, plant designs. Um, certainly the, the, the recent results that we've had in 2021, we demonstrated a megajoule of yield. In December 22, we demonstrated a gain of one and a half, three megajoule yield. Um, that, that has certainly invigorated the space, but, but it's been pretty active for a couple of years now. I think more investment has probably been made in the magnetically confined uh, fusion approach, the, the tokamak. Uh, but but yeah, there's a lot of activity and there's a lot of money from from private investors that has been pumped into this. Absolutely. So when you look to the future, I mean, I know you have uh, at least one child, <laughs> if not more than one child, and you think about sort of how you know we're facing some major climate issues, some major um, environmental issues. 
How do you feel like, you know, in terms of do you think that this ultimately is going to be the answer or is it one of the answers or like how do you feel in terms of what what the future looks like when it comes to energy? So, yeah, so we have uh, two children and yes, <laughs> the, uh, we are very hopeful, of of course, especially now with this ignition result that it's a, a fusion power plant isn't like to it's, it's in in their lifetime at least you know something that that is is, is viable and and comes on and helps with this with the energy security for you know uh, all countries as well but um and uh, yeah in the meantime i mean like the solar and and wind power but again these might be dependent on on where you live and uh, storage capabilities as well right it's not um it's not a um not the switch of a button sometimes if the sun doesn't shine in your area or you have like very short days, you have to be very limited in that. But. I, I think we have to be realistic about the timescales. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in climate science, but I would say we probably have to act faster here than we will be able to act with fusion power. I certainly think and hope that it will be one of the solutions in the future, but we should not rely on it and say, all right, we'll just wait till fusion is a viable power source and then we'll go from there. That That's probably going to be the wrong approach. So I have one last uh, really stupid question uh, that probably you're going to be like, that's, that's, that's for a, an astronomer, <laughs> which is... Um, you know, NASA a, a few weeks back told us there is a part of the sun that kind of broke off, but don't worry, everything's fine. <laughs> I've been dying to ask a physicist. It seems like somebody who's like creating little tiny suns uh, in in their laser beam uh, a world might be the person to ask. Um, should we not be worried about this, or do what? What's going on there? It's unlikely that that's going to create fusion. <laughs> yeah, okay. So the the sun, as you mentioned, like I don't think we mentioned it yet, uh, but yeah, the sun is a fusion power plant, right? That's what yeah. happens, but. The sun um, basically is, um, is is because of its big mass, it's confined and it creates these hot, de hot, uh, hot, dense areas in the center of it where the fusion happens, right? So if you have a little bit of deuterium, tritium gas, you're not going to get um, just floating around in space. You're not going to get fusion by itself. I don't think, I don't think something flying off of the sun is, uh, is an immediate problem for us. Um, and I don't think it's a model for what we're doing in the lab as well. As Sabrina said, the sun is a, it creates fusion, but it does it in a slightly different way. It's, it's confined through its own mass because it's so heavy, it, it all sticks together. Whereas what we're doing, as I said, is, you know, it's flying apart. It's not one, doesn't want to stay together because it's only a little bit. Yeah. And then if, if it's coming our way, right, then the, like if it's charged particles, the magnetic field's going to hopefully do its thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And them. and what yeah, so so okay, great. So no <laughs> the astronauts not, not that... astronauts might be a bit more worried, but yeah. I think okay. they are more worried about that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, Matias and Sabrina, thank you so much for being an uninquiring minds. Um it's been really incredible to get this inside view of this really kind of, you know, major sixty years in the making discovery. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I think it's it's a really inspiring time and you know it's we spend our careers working on this and many people have spent their careers working on it and never got to see it because they retired. So it's fantastic to be part of this. Yes. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. 
So that's it for another episode. Don't worry about parts breaking off the sun. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. 